as always, I, I enjoy my time with uh, Pastor Chuck and Rydell and the family. And I want to thank you for just the uh, warmness of your heart in receiving my wife. Thank you. I, I, I really appreciate that. Um, I, I haven't gone any place yet that we haven't felt that warmth and uh, welcoming. Of course, we haven't been every place that I preach yet either, <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, we'll just we'll just soak it all in, amen, so that if we ever happen to run into a spot like that where it's uh, not so welcoming, it'll be okay. I learned a long time ago that people seek to exclude you, you just draw a bigger circle and include them. Uh-huh. Yeah, always remember that. Yeah, and that way you're never excluded. Um, do, do be praying. Um with us and, and equally for us. Um, she shared last night, if you'll get the tape, um, concerning the prayer expeditions of declaring the kingdom of God and just praying for each of the uh, pastors and churches that we know in the various states that we've gone into so far, me seven and her nine. And we're praying at the uh, high points of each state. Now, I had shared uh, the concept of the Shalia with her. I think I've shared it here, haven't I? The Shalia. Do you remember that? Clark? All right. The principle of the Shalia in the Old Testament is the principle of the apostle in the New Testament. And what it simply means is that you are sent, authorized one by, of course, a sender. And that's quite frankly, the simplicity of what it means to be apostolic. But in the Old Testament, the primary verb for sin was the word shalak. And I'm not speaking in tongues. That's, that's, that's the word. And so the shalia was always shalak. And the clearest example of that would be Eliezer in Genesis 24. And you remember the story that Abraham sent him as himself to receive a wife for Isaac, his son. And that's exactly what the apostolic ministry is really all about, is that Christ sends us as himself to conduct the business of the kingdom. And so we said the high points like Denali, we used to know it as Mount McKinley, but it's returned back to its original name which is over 20,000 feet. And uh, I, I, I said to her, and she said to me, we might have to locate a Shalia <laughs> for that one. And of course, you know, Rainier in Washington as well, I think, which is over 16,000 and some feet. Uh, but I said, as long as there's a Shalia, that's you in the person of that Shalia that's doing that. And so, but, but it is the objective to pray at each of the high points by November 2020, which will be our next election. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm extremely happy about what happened November 2016. I know. I know you probably wouldn't expect to hear me say that, but yeah, I'm extremely happy about what happened because I realize what was at stake 
and the scope of things and the Lord really giving us a period by which to pray. Because when you, when you look at this thing, I mean, the whole deck was stacked. And God unstacked every card. Every card. And so I knew that it was a God thing that was going on. I have to admit, I was in Dominican Republic, and I was shocked. <laughs> I was shocked that it was happening. But when I looked and I saw, I turned the TV on, I saw that my state, the state of Florida, had just gone to President Trump. I said, whoa, we may have something going here. And then I think Michigan went next. And then Ohio. And then Pennsylvania. I said, there's really something going on here. And I realized that God had flipped the switch. And all of the, uh, I, I guess, those who were trying to predict, they were stumbling around, befuddled, didn't know what to say. If it hadn't have been embarrassing to them, probably some of them would have started crying. <laughs> but they really didn't know what to say because God had split that thing. Now, the reason I can say God did it is because the scripture is behind me. Promotion does not come from any place but the Lord. Period. And whether we choose to agree or disagree with whom he's promoted, it still comes from the Lord. And as sons of God, he's given us a responsibility, and that is to pray for those who are in authority. And so I really don't um, in any way condone or appreciate any dishonor? I really don't. I don't call him Trump. He's the president. Whether he's tweeting or not, he's still the president. I just ask God to give him wisdom, give him an understanding heart that he can lead a great nation like this nation properly. That's my prayer daily. Amen. And uh, some of my brothers, I'm not talking about my biological brothers because all of them are happy too, uh, but some of my other brothers, the extended family, they're not so happy. <laughs> and I'm telling them, that's okay. You might as well get used to praying. He's president at least until 2020. And so part of the expedition, the prayer expedition, is so that the kingdom of God can be declared from the highest points in each state. And we pray for those ministries that we know in these states, and I know quite a few, and I'm sure Michelle does as well, but we're praying for them, that the will of God would be done and accomplished in their lives. Amen? So just join us in that. And as uh, she said yesterday, when we come to Michigan, maybe some of you can join us on that trip. Now we're in Michigan, but I'm talking about for the high point. Uh, maybe some of you can join us on that trip. Amen. All right. Okay. Let's get back into our study um, that we started last night. The concept basically was learning dominion 
through adversity. And what I'd like to do is read a passage out of Matthew chapter 10. And I want to begin at verse 16. And I'm going to read down through about verse 35. And I want to give you a picture of this, Jesus speaking to them. In Matthew chapter 10, this is what I call one of the training missions. Before you get to this selection we're going to read here. And what you realize in a training mission is that you have some authority, but in this case it was limited. I said that Jesus basically taught by what I call the power of an idea. The power of an idea. And I want to give you an acronym here connected with idea. The letter I stands for instruction. Instruction. If you've ever been in the military, you know that when you experience what was called basic training, or years ago they called it boot camp, that was an instructional period of time. I don't know what length of time it is now, but years ago it used to be eight weeks. And you received instruction. And we can see that that is exactly what Jesus did with these men that he had chosen. He prayed all night before his selection. So we know that this is not just haphazardly choosing, carelessly choosing. But he spent time with his father to make sure these were the exact men that should be chosen for this mission. Now we equally know that in order for the scripture to be fulfilled, one of them would become known as the son of perdition. He had been spoken about, especially in the Psalms, and referred to as mine own familiar friend. It's amazing. Now it's a drawing from the experience of David with Ahithophel. Are you familiar with that story? Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba, and his counsel was powerful. And David realized that when you sat at the counsel or the mouth of Ahithophel, it was as though you were sitting at the mouth of God himself. That's how powerful this counsel was. And you know the story when David should have been out leading the men in war. He was back in a position which led to a condition that should have never been. Yeah. All right, you know the story there. Well, Ahithophel being Bathsheba's grandfather, he became offended with that matter, and he waited for the right opportunity to exact his vengeance on David. And it was when Absalom rebelled Ahithophel joined with him as his counselor. I thank God there was somebody by the name of Hushai who was also in place to counter the wisdom of Ahithophel. 
And so it was really from the backdrop of that story that we see Jesus experiencing Judas. And that's where he draws from in telling that story. Now you would have to ask, what was Judas offended about? Because Ahithophel was offended. And I can tell you that whenever you're training people and their hearts don't remain connected to you, their pulse beating with your pulse of purpose, they could easily get offended. And part of what Judas was doing was trying to push Jesus to be what he wanted him to be rather than allowing the divine plan to just simply unfold the way the Father had it. And so we know that even in the choice of Judas, this was divinely led. I don't know any of us that would start a ministry and, and knowingly choose a Judas. I wouldn't. Now, if one just happens to be there, okay, you know, we'll deal with it. But I would not willingly start knowing that I'm going to choose a son of perdition, ultimately. So, we know that Jesus is clear here. And so, Judas received the same instructions that all the rest received. So, he had the same opportunity for his heart to become pure as the others. Because it wasn't like he was giving the other 11 a set of instructions and Judas a different set of instructions. No, he had the same opportunity to overcome. All right? The letter D stands for demonstration. I said he trained by the power of an idea. And when Jesus completed what we call the Sermon on the Mount, from Matthew chapter 5 through 7. The conclusion was, number one, this man didn't teach like everybody else, the normal teachers of that day, that he was one that taught with authority. And what authority speaks to me of is that you're authorized to produce what you're teaching. Hear me carefully. You're authorized to produce what you're teaching. And that was very different because many of the teachers of that day were very scholarly men, but they had no ability to produce what they were teaching. Now, the reason I know this is because Jesus said, you stand in the door, you won't enter in, and you prevent others from entering in. In other words, you're not producing what you're saying. Now, another word that's akin to that is manifestation. What the earth is waiting on is not better instructors. It's waiting on the manifestation of the sons of God. We've got some very eloquent men and women in the earth today. Probably the best crop that's ever been in the earth. But the question is, are we just producing homilies? 
that will absolutely just, you know, riddle our minds with good thoughts? Or are we authorized by God to produce what we're saying? And I'm a firm believer that when God begins to say it, the grace is there to produce it. So there was demonstration, and you'll see this in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew. Read it carefully. The letter E in idea stands for experience. You get to experience what you've been taught. And this is where Matthew chapter 10 comes in because he's about to send them out on a limited mission. And we know that they are to only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel at this point. Correct? Are we all tracking together? My friend from uh, Trinidad who lived by way of New York now would say, are we communicating? Yes. So we know that, that it was a limited experience. Now the time would come when authorization would be given to go into all the world. But it wasn't now while they're training. It would have been like in the 60s, straight out of boot camp or during the process of boot camp, send young men to Vietnam. How I many of you understand? You don't do that. Because that's a casualty waiting to happen. So he limited who they could go to. Now I find that it's a lot better to train among friends because they will have some grace on you. You know, I, re I remember when, uh, when we had about 25 preachers and we were all there training. So, you know, you had limited opportunity as far as speaking because Apostle Sanders, who was the senior man there, the majority of the speaking that he did, and rightfully so, he should have, and he did. And in the process of training us, once in a while, um, usually about every couple of months, you get an opportunity to minister on a Sunday night. He didn't stick you up there on Sunday morning. No, Sunday night, because the family was there. And when you, when you get up to speak, now, you know, for me, in my case, I was studying scripture seven, eight hours a day, along with whatever else I was doing, getting very little sleep. So, you know, God was at that time installing the word in me. And so after two months, how many of you understand, you're loaded. <laughs> and, and you really want to unload. Uh, but I thank God that I wasn't among strangers. I was among family, and they had mercy on me. Well, I did learn better. I stopped preaching two hours. <laughs> I cut it down to an hour and a half. <laughs> but it's best to train among family. What better way, the young men and women who are coming up here, what better atmosphere and environment to really hone your skills in learning to present the word? You see, experience is necessary. Now, inexperience, listen to this, and, and this part always 
reminds me of how a young person many times behaves with their first acquaintance with power. Remember what they said when they came back? They said nothing about what they taught. They didn't tell it. We repeated everything you told us. Everything we've been hearing you teach, that's what we said to them. They didn't say that. Remember what they said? Lord, even the devils were subject to us in your name. When we use your name, even the devil came subject. What were they enamored about? Is exactly what a young person many times gets excited about. Power. Now, if you remember, how many of you remember the first time your dad let you drive the car? And you wanted to test it out to see what it had under the hood. It's because power excites us. And until you understand the right usage of power, all it can lead to is abuse. And what Jesus was doing at that moment was curbing their desire to misrepresent what power was about. He said, listen, that's not what you're to be excited about. Because as long as my name is there, yes, there is power in my name. He said, but what you should really be excited about, talk to me, is what? Is that your name is what? You have been reconnected. That's really what he's telling them. You have been reconnected. Your identity has been reset. And that's really what you should be excited about. Now, part, that's, all, that's important, getting these lessons in training. The last thing, the letter A, stands for accountability with the intent that affirmation would come with accountability. And that's what part of his correction was about in their excitement was I'm teaching you how to be accountable, but at the same time, your names are written, I'm affirming you. So, it's accountability with affirmation. So that's the backdrop for this. Because he said, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely you have received and freely you give. All right. So in verse 10 here, uh, excuse me, verse 16, let's go there. He said, Behold, I send you forth a sheep in the midst of wolves. How many sending ceremonies have you ever been to? And this is the first thing they said to somebody. You're going out like sheep among a pack of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men. 
for they will deliver you up to the councils. And this year, the word council is Sanhedrin's. And they will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak. In the early years, when I was training as a young minister, I remember people would get up and they would quote this passage. Said so the Lord said, take no thought. Just open your mouth. You know, at that point, they were hooping a little bit. And I'll speak through you. You know, and I, I came back, and I'm a context man. And the context of what they just said was not this. He said, when you are brought into a situation like that, don't pre-plan your speech. You'll probably forget it. And it's at that point when you open up. And the Lord said, and that's when I'll give you what to say. You know, I, I, I look at this and I'm thinking, wow. They're being instructed. They're being prepared. But equally, he's giving them the keys to dominion, although adversity is present. He said, for it shall be given you in the same hour which you shall speak. Verse 20. For it is not ye that speak, but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child. How many of you understand? That's abnormal. That is an abnormal activity. He said, and the children shall rise up against their parents. And obviously, they were not Everett children raised in the Everett household in Sneeze Ferry. Because if you rose up against either mama or daddy, they at that time had the revelation before Bill Cosby even made it famous on TV. I brought you into this world. And I will take you out. <laughs> I heard that a whole lot of times growing up. <laughs> and so he said here, verse 22, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man become. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered 
that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light. And what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. That's how important we are to our father. Now, every time I read this scripture, you know what I say? Thank you, Jesus. They're not counting. <laughs> You'll catch up with that about tomorrow. But being that they're numbered, hallelujah. Said, Fear ye not, therefore, for ye are more valuable than many sparrows. Whosoever, therefore, shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. In other words, there's a dividing that's going on. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Now you read that selection of scripture. And you almost come away thinking, wow. He's telling them all of this before he sends them. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not like he's hiding anything. He's saying, this is what you're going to face. He said, but don't worry. I've overcome the world. So will you. But I began to ask the Lord, what is it that you're communicating through a passage like this that could, if you just read it face value, it could look pretty dreary? And pretty discouraging. And you'd say, no, Lord, send somebody else. I'll hang behind. Send somebody else into this kind of assignment. But what I have come to understand, brethren, is that he's instructing them that although there may be some very difficult aspects of the assignment, yet... They have wherewithal within them to overcome the difficulty. Because what this assignment is about is reestablishing dominion in the earth. And you have beachheads of adversity, beachheads of enemies that's going to resist this thing. And so don't be shocked when you run into this. And so this is why I said that 
You learn dominion through adversity. Now, I talked about last night the importance of our praise and our rejoicing, whatever we've gone through these spots in life. If you, you have lived long enough, and you need to know that we have these spots in life to where it would be a whole lot easier to complain, to murmur, rather than to praise God through it. Now, the Bible tells us, in all things, finish it up for me. Give thanks. Why? Because it's the will of God. And that's all we need to know, is that it's the will of God. In Christ Jesus, concerning you, that in all things, we give thanks. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You see, a couple of years ago, and really it was for both of us, we were probably going through the most trying season of our lives thus far because we both lost our long-term spouses. And I was finding it difficult to give thanks. Now I'm telling you, it, the thought did not hit me, not one single time. The devil came and stole my wife. I don't think it hit her. The devil came and stole her husband because the devil cannot steal unless you give him permission to steal. And I was not offering him permission to steal. So it had to be settled in our hearts that this was something that was agreed upon by God and them. And we're left in the earth. And we've got to learn how to rejoice even through this. I knew that this was important not only for me, but for my children to see that everything that their dad had taught them. Natalie, at that time, she was 38, almost 38, Steve, 36. And all they've known is a dad and mom that had served the Lord and modeled before them what it was to be a kingdom citizen. And I knew it was crucial for them to see that this worked even in the midst of what could be considered adversity. And so when we came to celebrate, I said, this is a celebration of life. I said, I'm not going to have any dirges sung in here today. We're going to rejoice, and we're going to thank God. We're going to thank God because he privileged us to experience his expression of love, my children, through your mother, me, through my wife, brothers and sisters, through your sister. And we're going to rejoice today and thank God for this. And we did. In fact, I almost got so happy one time I got up and started dancing. At a funeral? Yeah. I saw God reconnect two brothers who had been separated for years. And the prophetic started arising in me. At a funeral? Yes. Who said we have to behave like the world? We don't. 
You see, you can have dominion in any situation if you choose to cooperate with him. So what adversity many times does, it identifies destiny. Whatever your personal adversity may be, is probably connecting you to your personal destiny. When you look at it from a national level, national destinies. So as I said, what appears to be a thorn in the flesh, if you will, a disadvantage, and whether it is short-term or long-term, it is actually an opportunity to access grace in your life in a way like Never before. Remember what Paul said? He said, three times I asked God to remove this thing. And each time the Lord would say to him, my grace is sufficient. No, I'm not going to remove what appears to be a disadvantage. But what I am going to do is teach you about grace. Now the definition to me, one of the better ones of grace is that it is divine influence upon the heart and the reflection, the corresponding reflection in life, including gratitude. You see, a true experience with grace will bring you to gratitude. Now, the amazing thing when the apostles in their writings, when they adopted the word charis, which is, of course, the Greek word that was transliterated as grace. When they took that term in, in their writings, and the Holy Ghost led them to do this, because the Bible tells us that holy men, as they were borne along by the wind of the Holy Ghost, wrote the scriptures, correct? So we know the Holy Ghost led them to do this. But it's interesting what that word was in the earlier years. In fact, in fact it was a reciprocity term. <laughs> yeah, you look just about as shocked as I looked when I, when I first read it. Because the concept was, in the Latin, it is something for something. That was the term. So if you look at this really in the reality of grace, it isn't just all free. No, God is getting something out of this too. We receive something, divine influence. He's receiving something, the reflection of that in our lives. And especially... Our gratitude. It, is, it really is something for something. Now another way that we say the same thing is that you have, God has an inheritance in the saints. It's not just our inheritance. Tell your neighbor, God's getting something out of this too. Hallelujah. I love the way that uh, Dr. Clarice Fluid says it. She says, God is in the earth today looking for God. 
I said, absolutely. Because the only thing that the seed can bring forth is of its own kind. And so the seed of God can only produce. Don't be afraid to say it. That's why you're called the son of God. Because the seed of God can only produce. One more time. That's why you're called a son of God. So the seed of God can only produce. You're about to catch it. You're about to catch it. You know, you, you, you just got to get rid of the, the last little, you know, twinges of religion in your mind. Because when my children were born, I didn't look for anything other than me. I didn't look for something different. Another little story. Why do you think when God presented the womb and the woman to Adam, he said, now that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. You see, everything else, there was nothing of his kind. He couldn't look at a hippopotamus and say, that's it. But when he looked at her, he said, now, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. She shall be called man with a womb. I can see him saying to God, God, yes, yeah, that's it there. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, you, you did it right. And that's exactly the expectation of God. And so what appears to be adversity, and what we dealt with last night, was how that in the interim area, if you will, the soul of man, that is where it seems the adversity, the biggest adversity, is going on. Because I love something that Ref Waldo Emerson said, is not what's behind you or what's ahead of you that gives you your biggest trouble. It's what's in you. And that's where the battleground really is. And so it wasn't so much when God said this to Paul, my grace is sufficient. It wasn't even the thorn in the flesh. And I've, and I've heard, you know, just different things about what that was. He had poor eyesight. Uh, some I won't even repeat. But that really wasn't the issue. It was what he was thinking about the issue. And so what God said is that I'm going to give you grace to help you. And this grace is going to carry you through. And you're going to learn something about grace through this experience that otherwise you could not have understood. Hallelujah. You know, so when, when we were talking before we got married, you know, a lot of the things like, well, do you mash the end of the tube of the toothpaste or the middle of it? That stuff didn't even matter anymore. 
you put a roll of toilet paper where you pull from the top or from the bottom. That stuff didn't matter anymore. Do you always pick your socks up? <laughs> really, when you walk through adversity, I mean, it matters, but it really doesn't matter anymore. Huh? Because those are the battles that you fight in immaturity. And once you get mature, you think about it. You say, is that worth fighting? No, no, that's it's not even worth fighting over. It's not even worth disagreeing over. No, no, no. Let's just go on to something else. <laughs> those were the kind of conversations we'd have because we'd come through and had experienced deep pain. Deep. When your mate can't even take a bath anymore, and you got to wash them, what end of the toothpaste they mash doesn't matter anymore. When they can't even clean themselves because they've soiled their clothes whether a sock is in the floor or not. That doesn't matter anymore. When you've got to sit on a stool and feed them because they cannot feed themselves. How they make the bed up, whether it's military style, because they can't make the bed up anymore. Those things do not matter anymore. What really matters is that you have an opportunity to express unconditional love. Because basically, they're unable to even say thanks. And it can't just be a public thing. Behaving nicely in public? No, when you get home. There were a couple of times I just had to walk away. <laughs> and I said, all right, Lord, okay. Then I could come back and face it again. Because what was happening, my soul wanted to react. See, adversity. God teaches us dominion through Adversity. Now, it was one powerful time, I'll tell you, and it, and it was really funny. Uh, Anne was making her list of complaints. <laughs> and when she got to the end of the list, I said, well, who's done all this? She said, just put your name, fill in the space, each line with each thing I just said. <laughs> Now, that's what I had to say. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. <laughs> Learning dominion through adversity. I want to give you a list of names here. And I want you to hear something, how they discovered destiny. But it was because of adversity. 
How many of you have heard of Dr. A.B. Simpson? Back in the 1880s, the period that you're talking about. He was dying. He discovered divine healing was a part of new covenant privileges. So he became one of the pioneers of modern divine healing. He was reading the word in the process of dying. And he discovered the truth. And he got off his bed. You see, dominion through adversity. Or Roberts had stammering speech in his early years. How many of you had any idea? He did. And yet, when you heard him preach, once Christ had touched him, you didn't hear any of that. Kenneth Hagin had tuberculosis. Brother Hagin ended up with a powerful healing ministry. And there are many men who have come out of his loins with powerful healing ministries. You see, your disability can become your ability. In Finland, an ice-capped nation, at one time, it was one of the world leaders in wireless technology. You see, what appears to be a disadvantage can be your advantage. In Namibia, a desert nation on the continent of Africa, many of the Hollywood movies were shot in that country. And no one would have expected that. In Iceland, very long winters. So what people did, they stayed indoors, and they spent time on the Internet, lots of time reading. So you have lots of high IQs there. World leaders in Internet games, they also flooded the world with generic medicine. You see, they could have sat around and complained. But your disadvantage can be an advantage. Singapore has no national resources other than people. Now they have a highly intelligent community. World leaders in technology and medical tourism. China, of course we know what they have. Gigantic population. Clustered the people together. All the land is not capable, you know, of, of, for building. You've got some of the highest peaks in the world there in China. So what they learned to do was share resources, division of labor, one of the postmodern manufacturing giants. Germany, after two world wars, experienced devastated family life. Now families started family firms. They excelled in customer service. Family businesses now employ more than 20 million people in the nation. Japan has frequent earthquakes and no arable land. So what they developed was terrace farming. They developed serpentine robots. Japan is a global leader in robotics. Botswana, which is landlocked right off from 
South Africa. They unearthed diamonds and now are the world's largest diamond producers. Abraham, let me give, get you in the scripture so you'll get happy again. He had many years of being seedless, but it pointed to his destiny as a father of multitudes of nations becoming one great nation. Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh. He eventually confronted Pharaoh as the chosen vessel of God and as God himself. The thing that you're fearful of doing is probably the thing you are born to do. Let me have the water there. The thing you're fearful of doing is probably the thing you're born to do. So what would you be fearful of doing? Just think about it. Gideon. Everybody knows the story of Gideon. Some of us relate to Gideon. What his cowardice revealed, the truth of, is that he was destined to be a mighty man of valor. Naomi's adversity in Moab really pointed to her destiny in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Her impoverishment was the seed to her empowerment. Jeremiah complained of an inability to speak, which pointed to his powerful prophetic ministry to the nations. Simon Peter could not speak the truth before a servant girl. And what it led to, it pointed to him speaking the truth before thousands of people in the book of Acts and being a door opener even to the nations via Cornelius' house. You see, what appears to be a disadvantage is actually the key to unlocking your destiny. Yeah. Hallelujah. So the scripture says this to us, then agree with your adversary quickly. I'll say this, agree with your adversity quickly. Now the context of that was that if you don't agree with them quickly and settle the issue, you could be thrown into debtor's prison. But what we're saying is, don't fight your adversity. Work through it toward your destiny. You see, what adversity does is strengthens each one of us. If you're having a recurring adversity, assess your situation quickly. Diagnose the weakness. Get rid of every reaction that is unproductive. Learn to reduce your setback time in comparison to your recovery time, which equals maturity. Learn to strengthen yourself. For example, like David did when he had to strengthen himself in the Lord because he was facing a situation which could have been adverse to him, they desired to stone him. And the Bible tells us that about the third day, David strengthened himself in the Lord. 
And then he asked God, do I pursue them? And the Lord said, yes, pursue the adversity. You will overtake it. You will overtake it. And you will recover all. But until you pursue it, you overtake nothing. You leave yourself vulnerable to your family who are desiring at that point to kill you. He said, but if you pursue them, you see, all he needed was a word from God. There was no prophet there to give him a word. There was no one there encouraging him. So he had to go to God. What do I do? And there are moments that God leaves every one of us like that, where there's nobody to go to, to get a word from. And so we have to come to him, the giver of all words. What do I do? And the Lord said, pursue your adversity. You'll overcome it. Hallelujah. Dominion will be experienced through this. And you will recover all. I can see the Father sending the Son to the earth. You know what he said? Pursue the adversity in the earth. You will overcome it. Glory to God. And you will recover all. We have to look at these stories in context with what unfolded in the life of the Son of God. Hallelujah. And then even as he said, a servant can be as his master, not greater, if it happened for him. What do you think God would say to us when we're experiencing it? You think he's going to say, sit around, mourn your losses, accept your losses? No, 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 no. You see, why this is so important? Because every one of us more than likely have family members that are not necessarily totally in sync with the will of God for their lives. You know what we can do? We have been given the authority in Jesus' name to pursue. You don't have to be overbearing, but you can pursue in prayer. And then whenever God opens the door for conversation, you can pursue the conversation. And what you know that's working in you, greater is he that is in you than that thing that's working in them. And you will recover all. Hallelujah. 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 Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. The Bible says in, in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You see, what adversity comes to do is to unlock hidden gifts inside of you. You start to discover things that are already in you that you didn't even know that were in you. You see, Gideon's valor was activated by the Midianite oppression. 
Joseph's trial re revealed him as the chief economist of Egypt. But none of this happened apart from adversity. So what, when you look at adversity, adversity can lead to innovations, releasing creativity within people. You see, denominational adversity led brethren to search the scriptures, and they ultimately developed what we call today self-governing, self-propagating churches. Denominational adversity. Persecution at Jerusalem forced the disciples to spread out and birth the church of Antioch, which became the model church of releasing the apostolic flow into all the earth. Paul, opposed in the synagogue, led to the establishment of local churches and the school of Tyrannius because he was opposed by the Jews whom he loved and would have given his life for. In fact, what he said was, if, if my brethren would come to Christ, I would die and go to hell to allow them to come to Christ. That's how deep he was about his brothers. And here they opposed him, and so thus we see many of the churches within the nations, the ethnos, established. Joseph's taxation solution prevented Egypt from experiencing economic insolvency when other nations did. Jacob's genetic engineering led to retrieve wealth when he had been defrauded for 20 years. What appears to be a disadvantage is actually to your advantage. So what adversity does is strengthens you by re increasing your capacity for fruitfulness. Adversity will focus your thoughts and cause one to concentrate on the essentials, eliminating the non-essentials. Paul and Silas praised God in prison. Esther's trial focused the nation in a fast that preserved the whole nation. You see, your adversity can actually be to your advantage. And then when you look at Jesus in Luke chapter 2, said he came out and he went and he was wont to the Mount of Olives and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and he kneeled down and he prayed because he was facing adversity, but it became his advantage to fully release himself to the will of God. Listen that in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house. See, anybody who would pray to any god, other than the king at that time, said that they would be thrown into a den of lions. You know, we often say that Daniel was thrown into a lion's den. No, that's not right. You can be in a, in a lion's den, and there are no lions there. Are you catching that? You can be in a lion's den, and there are no lions there. But you're in a den of lions. They're there. And they're hungry. Tell somebody, that sounds like adversity. But did he stop praying? He continued to be faithful in prayer. And this is what the scripture said. He kneeled upon his knees, not just praying one time a day. Maybe he can sneak one in and they not catch him. Three times a day 
and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. You see, there was something, uh, once again, that God was teaching him, and that is dominion through adversity. You see, what adversity exposes is one's priorities. I love what Robert Murray said. Live near to God so all things will appear to you little in comparison to eternal realities. And Thomas Akempis said, let temporal things serve thy use, but the eternal be the objective of thy desire. The psalmist said it this way, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. The way it's said in the New Living Translation, I used to wander off until God disciplined me. But now I closely follow your word. You see, adversity exposes the attributes of God that have been developed in a person. The fire of adversity comes to test your genuineness. Are you gold or simply yellow? David had resilience that demonstrates his genuineness. However, Saul consulted the witch in the time of adversity. And he eventually committed suicide. You see, resilience enables all of us to synthesize the reality of loss and the promise of hope. It is one of the major components of divine DNA as revealed in the scriptures. Learn to see things through the lens of resilience. I love what Job said in chapter 19. Now let's talk about that book for a moment. How many of you studied that book often? I didn't think so. Isn't it an interesting book though? If you've read it all the way through. And you'll find out that the vast majority of the book is about souls combating a soul. How does the book start? Job is an upright man. He eschewed evil. That simply means he detests evil, correct? We know that he's a man of prayer. He's a man of sacrifice because he even sacrifices for his children just in case they might have missed it. We know that he's a wealthy man. We know he's married. And then what happens? Come on, talk to me a little bit. Adversity comes his way. God has a conversation with a tool that he uses sometimes. What happened with the conversation? Have you considered my servant Job? Oh, yeah, I've considered him many times, but I can't get to him because you have a hedge around him. Mm -hmm. He said, but if you remove the hedge, I can get him. So what did God do? He removed the hedge, correct? Now, what was God saying in doing that? I have more confidence in my ability and what I have worked inside of you 
than your ability to fail. And God still wants to tell his children that I have more confidence in the Christ that I've installed inside of you than your ability to mess it up. And the only way that you're going to come to understand this is I'm going to allow you to experience some adversity. So how does it start? Well, his children are out. I believe they were having a feast. <laughs> Adversity came, took them away, but there was one left to tell the story. I'm the only one left. His crops, his livestock, all of his stuff was taken. I'd say that qualify as adversity. Now, I'm glad Michelle was praying while I was in South Africa when Hurricane Irma was coming through southwest Florida. <laughs> they would call me, they'd say, aren't you concerned? Man, it's a Category 5 storm bearing down and it's coming, if you will, I mean, point blank, it's going to hit right where you live. Aren't you concerned? I said, what can I do? 8,600 miles away. Worry? What good is that going to do? I mean, Jesus already told us, take no thought. In other words, don't give over to anxiety because you're facing adversity. She was praying in Branson, Lord, we're about to get married in December. <laughs> and we don't need to be really rebuilding a house all over again. Because if you know anything about a, a Category 5 hurricane, it can tear up a whole lot of stuff. So I just said, Lord, you gave me the house. At that time, it was still me. It wasn't us just yet. I said, and, and you know, if you remove this one, being that I'm a son, that means you have something higher. And so I just preached and I taught in the school as though no storm was even going on. And then they took a picture and sent me a picture of the house. Nothing except just a little, maybe foot and a half piece of soffit was removed from the house. And a Category 5 storm. Now, I could have easily drifted over into my humanity. I said, oh, God. Not, you know, start walking the four-plate, pacing back and forth. This is horrible. This is bad. This storm is there. I'm not even there where I can rebuke it. Oh, God, what are we going to do? No. <laughs> or rested in the Lord. Now, do you remember what Job said when they continued to bring to him the news? He said, the Lord gave me everything. And if it's being removed, it's because the Lord has something better in mind. 
finally it got so difficult, his body was touched. He's got boils all over. I don't know in modern medicine what that would be called. But when you've got boils all over you, they're probably oozing. You've got to scrape them. That's not really a pretty situation. And when you can maintain your praise, you can maintain your integrity in a situation like that, Come on, something's working inside of you, and that's God. And it got so bad, his wife said, listen, man, why don't you just curse God and die? Give it up. It, it, it can't get any worse. But you know what he said? Naked, I came into this world. And if I got to leave the same way, I'll leave that. You see, he maintained his integrity in the midst of adversity. Why do you think God had that book added as part of the canon of Scripture? Because he saw you, he saw me living in the 21st century. And he knew that there would be moments when we would be facing very difficult, unexplainable things. You would exercise faith for it to be different. But it's not different. So then, do you say as Habakkuk said, yet will I rejoice. I'll still maintain my integrity. Someone asked me, Everett, what are you going to preach now? Being that death has come to your very household. I said, all of you, this is what I want you to understand. Truth is not truth just because I'm saying it. Truth is truth because he said so. And that's all I need to know is did he say so? Because that's what makes it the truth. No individual experience determines whether something is the truth or not. We're talking here the integrity of God at the matter. So now here comes his wonderful friends. And they're so stunned by what they see. They can't even talk for a week. Can you imagine that? See, I'm trying to give you the story, how it really unfolds. They came, they heard about it, they came to see. You know how nosy people are, whether they're friends or not. They came to see, and it was worse <laughs> than what they had heard. They, it was indescribable, so it shut them up for a week. And then finally, after a week, they, they came with a religious conclusion. Job, we understand why you are in the state that you are in. 
You know how people do when they come to a religious conclusion. They get a religious voice to Job. <laughs> we understand why you are in the condition you're in. No man would go through this except he's in sin. And then it begins. The wrestling of the souls. Because at that point, not a single one of them are aware of the previous conversation that God had. And so the battle is within the soul. And that's generally where the adversity really is. It's within the soul and how you're trying to interpret something that was initiated in a divine conversation. You see, God has already had a conversation with himself in his own counsel about you. The script was already written before you got here. And it begins to unfold sentence by sentence called our life. And God doesn't necessarily make us fully aware of all this in the script until some of it is lived out and then he'll tell you, now this is what I was doing. And so the vast majority of the book of Job is the conversation that he and his friends are having. They give an accusation. He gives a rebuttal. What can we learn from that? When people are saying things that they don't have any idea what they're talking about, leveling accusations against you based upon the knowledge and the appearance of the soul don't even give it an answer that's what we should learn from the book of Job don't even give it an answer they don't deserve one they don't know what they're talking about because you finally get to the end when all the arguments are over and then here comes the character who portrays the Holy Spirit, and he starts with Job. Because, you see, here is the Son of God trying to give a rebuttal to things that are spinning out of unlearned conclusions. And he says, where were you? You see, what Job didn't know was that there was something in him that wanted to justify himself. What he was going through, and that had to be axed. So the character that represents the Holy Spirit began to ask hard questions. Where were you when I put all the stars in their spots, assigned them, and gave them names? Where were you when I put the constellations together? Where were you? You see, at that point, the whole purpose behind it is to say, let's settle the matter. 
You really don't understand why the adversity is here. But I do. They don't know what they're talking about.